but <laughs> anyway, it's really good to be here. And um, before we get started on the lesson, I have, I spent the weekend with um, family, and so I have um, wisdom and insight from a four-year-old, or something I've kind of extrapolated from him. He's, um, he's going to be five pretty soon, but he goes to preschool two days a week, and after school, one day a week now, he gets to go to gymnastics. And he's so excited. I don't know if he's more excited about going to gymnastics or staying late at school to eat his lunch with his friends. But he really, so I told him, I said, how do you like gymnastics? And he says, oh, I really like it. I really, really like it. And I said, good. I said, have you learned a lot? And he said, yes, I've learned a whole bunch. And I said, what have you learned? And he went, I don't know. And I said, but you learned a lot? Yes, I've learned a whole bunch. I said, so do you remember what you learned? No. So, and I, I chuckled at him, but then when I was um, reading the word one day, this weekend, the Lord kind of said, you know, um, we all do, you all do that. You do that. You learn something. You hear something. You sit through church and you hear an awesome sermon. Or you read the word and you go, oh, that, that just really, the Holy Spirit really struck me. And three days later, somebody says, so what was your church about? Well, pastor spoke on the Holy Spirit. So what did he say? I mean, what was meaningful to you? And you go, I don't know. You knew it hit you. You knew the Holy Spirit did it. But because you didn't take it in, because you didn't apply it, because you didn't say, what does look this look like in my life? Then you don't own it. You just hear it. You might have heard it, but you didn't really take it in. It didn't apply to you. To make the word of God or anything you hear meaningful to you, you have to take it in and you have to say, how does this look in my life? How do I live this out? And then you do more than listen to it. Somebody can ask you what you learned and you actually can answer them. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, I, like I said, I just kind of, I heard that and maybe it was just for me, but the Lord said, you know, um, you do that. You need to take it in. You need to say, what does this look like? How does this apply to me? What am I going to do to live this out? So wisdom from a four-year-old. So our lesson today is called Don't Murmur at Mara. I thought it was such an interesting title that uh, it's only uh, six verses long. But in it is just three basic components. And they're, they're kind of separate. And then they all wrap up together for one big lesson. And we're going to start it with uh, part one, the test. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's telling us that to that our faith is made genuine by going through trials. Gold is made pure with a lot of heat. And our faith, if it isn't tested, how do we know it even works? How do we, if we don't have to trust God for something that's beyond ourselves, is that faith? I mean, does our faith grow? I think it doesn't. I think that's how. Testing seems to be a normal event in our walk with the Lord. You can just count on it. If you're, if you're walking with the Lord and you're trying to walk with the Lord, you're going to have problems. 
you're going to have trials. You're going to have tests. So we're going to do the part out of Exodus now, but first of all, I want to do a, a little exercise here. So I'm trying to split the room kind of. This part of the room over, when I count to three, I want you to say four times, I want you to say murmur, murmur, murmur. Not loudly, just very soft. And over here, I want you to say grumble. So we're going to do this. One, two, three. See? And if you're standing up here, it doesn't sound really good. And yet Moses had three million people. With Maybe they weren't saying murmur and grumble, but they were complaining. They were they were always criticizing. And it's not a pretty sound. And think of the times when we all get together and that's what we do. What do you think? I mean, God's standing up there going, really? Really, people? So in Exodus 15, 22 to 24, it says, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too busy to drink. So they called the place Mara, meaning bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink, they demanded. So here we are. We're three days past the Red Sea. We're three days into the wilderness, and they don't have any water. We don't know how much water they carried out of Egypt, but we know there were a lot of them, <laughs> and that we had livestock. We had cows and sheep, and goats, and various sundry other things that need water. And there wasn't any. We definite, This was definitely a trial. This was a test. God was testing them. The people probably weren't celebrating anymore about being across the Red Sea because now they were thirsty. What we see here is that God often puts us in a trial almost always following a major victory. Have you ever noticed that in your walk with the Lord? You have a total breakthrough. I mean, you are just like whooping it up spiritually. And like what, three, four, five days later, something really just bam. The Israelites were definitely being tested. They had just seen a series of events. They went through the plagues. Well, they didn't go through them. They watched the plagues in Egypt. They saw Pharaoh humbled enough to ask them to leave, to give them things to get them out. And then, miracle of all miracles, the Red Sea stood up on each side and they walked through on dry ground. I mean, that's amazing. They're only three days past that. Three days. Moses brought the children into, of Israel into the wilderness of Shur. Moses was God's man and the Israelites were told to follow him. Moses checked with God. They were supposed to check with Moses. And they were traveling a route that was outside the normal travel. They were outside the major trade routes around the sea. They went to the wilderness of Shur, and it's out of the way. But isn't that exactly what God did for them when he took them to the Red Sea? He took them the long way around because he wanted to protect them from their enemies. He didn't want them to get discouraged immediately so we're going to look at this for a while why would God not let them follow the trade route there were probably lots of wells along the trade route if nothing else they had the Red Sea they could drink out of the cows could drink 
You know, there would be enough water. But no, <laughs> not God. God had Moses take them a different route, which obviously commerce didn't travel in because there wasn't any water there. So has God ever taken you on a path in your life that doesn't seem to be the easiest or the quickest? I mean, you know, we can say, oh, that's really interesting about the children of Israel. But what about us? Do we ever end up in a place where we think, um, you know, how would I get here or why am I here? We like to plan and think things out. We like to maneuver our way to happiness, success. Pro and we like to problem solve around the way, how to get to the shortest, quickest route to our goal. People make lots of money writing books about that, you know, the shortest way to success, how to get, you know, how to become a millionaire in six easy steps. I mean, that's what we are. We're, we're thinking, okay, what can I do? What can I do to get here? What can I do to achieve that? And, you know, along the way, we don't have time really to be seeking God when we're doing that. But God isn't like that, not at all. No, he never takes the easy way, <laughs> never. In just last week's lesson, Bree told us that God took them the long way around to protect them and to grow them. Because going back to the beginning, we do not grow in our faith if we do not struggle. Kind of like going to the gym, no pain, no gain, you know? It doesn't happen. They have a funny little commercial on now right now for a health plan that says if you could eat one piece of broccoli and it kept you from heart disease, or if you could do one sit-up and it kept you from whatever, wouldn't that be great? And you see these people all, you know, and you think that would be wonderful, but that's not the way it works, and it's not the way it works spiritually either. In our lives, we learn very little during the times of peace and comfort, during times of plenty and contentment. But let a trial come or let a delay in our plan come. And you know what happens? We acquire time to pray. We all of a sudden have enough time to read God's word. We have time to call out to God and ask him for help and what his direction is. When everything's going the way I planned it, I, it's easy to miss that daily prayer. It's easy to miss the scripture reading. But when we're in trouble, oh my goodness, you know, the first place we go is our knees, which is a good thing, but we might not have been in quite as much trouble if we'd gone there to begin with. If we think about those times when your plans, your hopes, your dreams seem to fall apart, kind of go off the radar, in our mind, it would only take just this one thing. If just this one thing would happen, I would be happy, my plan would work, and after all, God, I did pray about it. I said, help me get this. And you didn't stop me, so this must be your will. And if I did all that, how come I'm standing here in the wilderness without any water? So I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and there's one thing in my life that really wraps together, and I'll do it really fast, but when I was working, I um, had started as a secretary, and I really wanted this one kind of a job in the department I worked in. They called them agents, and they didn't have any women doing that, but I went to school, and I figured someday they'd, you know, modernize, and uh, so finally the job opens up, and, and I got one of them, and I did it for a few years, and kind of decided that you couldn't make enough decisions on your own on that one, so I wanted to be a supervisor. So I was still in school, so I just, I applied, and I ended up getting one, and it was the perfect job. 
the job I wanted. It was in the greatest section in the department. I worked for the nicest man. I was so happy. I was like, thank you, Lord. This is just what I wanted. It's what I prayed about for my career. Thank you. Eight months later, I'm on vacation in Hawaii, and they reorganized the department. And they changed my job. And I still worked for the same place, but they took some of the work away. And now I now work for somebody I didn't even like or respect. And I came back, and I thought, what happened here? You know? Lord, I thought you wanted me to have the job, and now you took it away. It's not what I wanted. I thought, how could this happen? So, you know, it went on, and, and about eight months later, I decided I would, I would transfer. So I transferred to another section, and it was just this, this funny little section that, that did things that the big, the big glamorous people didn't do. And then they added a couple more little sections from other departments into it until it was just kind of a little mishmash of funny little things. And it was fun to work in and all that. And then about a year later, um, we got a new manager. And the best thing a manager can do for corporate life, they think, is to reorganize. So he reorganized the department. And they decided to group some other things in with this other little oddball stuff and give it kind of a new direction. And he needed a manager to head it up. And I was absolutely the only person who knew all that stuff. I mean, <laughs> I. And so I interviewed for the job, and I got it. So I got a raise. I got an elevation. I got more stuff. And I stood back. I was driving home, and I thought, wow, God, look what you did. Because I didn't do it. I would have stayed where I was. And, and I just, I still get all choked up about it because it was just so apparent. When you stood back and watched the pieces fall into place, you went, wow, God. And so to me, that was just, that's what happens in our life. Sometimes we don't see it with quite that revelation, but God actually does know what he's doing. <laughs> and we just have to trust him and not fight him along the way. So here they were. They were three days in the wilderness with no water. We think three days isn't all that long, but it was long enough to forget the victory that they had just walked through. Now Israel was faced with a long trip through a difficult, dry desert. And just as a point of reference, three days is actually almost the maximum you could go without any water in the desert. So they probably had a little bit of water, but three days was, they were getting pretty thirsty. But you know what they forgot? They forgot that the God who parted the Red Sea could obviously give them water. And instead, they griped, they murmured, they demanded. They complained about Moses. They, they kind of, they always just kind of went after him and said, what are you doing? You, you know, we're going to die. It was at this point that we see God was testing them. They tested them by giving them a command to obey. They were supposed to follow Moses. They were supposed to trust God. They were supposed to obey God. That didn't seem too hard when he told them that. But thirsty in the desert made it a little harder. Because the simple fact is that when God tells us what to do, he's really giving us a test. Our obedience determines if we pass the test or fail the test. Totally, just our obedience. That's, that's just so amazing to me. He gives us this test, and all we have to do is obey. And then we pass. We don't even have to study for that. In one of the commentaries I was reading, it made a very interesting statement. It said, 
It had yet to be demonstrated by a test whether the children of Israel were worshiping people who occasionally murmured or were murmuring people who occasionally worshiped. Their true nature would be revealed in times of testing. And you know what? That's true for all of us. Our true nature is revealed. Our spiritual nature is revealed in times of testing. Am I going to trust God? Because if I'm not trusting God, I don't have faith. Faith, I mean, trust is a proof of faith. I can say I believe that God's going to deliver me, but if I'm trying my hard to deliver myself, I'm not actually trusting God. I'm trusting me. And there's only one of us who's going to be working at a time. And if I'm pulling all the strings and doing it my way, then God will just wait for me to decide I can't do it. If I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to trust him, then I'm going to believe that he can do it and wait for him to do it. Because if I'm doing it myself, that's almost like anti-faith. Because we're not putting our faith in God. No matter what we say, no matter what we tell ourselves, if we're going to trust God, if we're going to have faith, we have to trust him. And trust him means wait sometimes. Sometimes it means being thirsty. So how about us? How about me? What do I do? What do you do? Are we worshipers who sometimes get discouraged and gripe to God? Because that's okay. God's big enough to handle my gripes. But do I turn around after I'm through griping and just know that he's there and he's going to be trustworthy? Or are we like spoiled children who want what they want now and occasionally we include God in our plans? You know, what we do most often, or what I do most often, <laughs> so um, is I like to try to figure things out. So I'm kind of an A personality, and I look ahead, and I, I at work, it worked really well. You could do five-year plans and, you know, three-year plans, and you could see how you could move things. And that doesn't work spiritually in my own life very well, I can tell you. But if I'm trying, I try to figure things out. And then I think, God, this is such a good idea, and it would really bring credit to your kingdom, and this would be really good. So I'm sure this is your will. So will you just endorse this? Sign off on this. <laughs> and you know that just doesn't work. Because my idea can't be as good as his idea. Matthew Henry said, we find that the greatest joys and hopes are, are soon turned to the greatest griefs and fears by those who live by sense alone and not by faith. If I can see it, if I can feel it, if I can, you know, own it, then somehow it seems like that's where all my joy comes from. If your happiness and joy comes from being able to look at your life and be content or look at the future and say, I can achieve this. If you go by senses, if you go by whether you're emotionally bought into something or whether it looks good, then that's not, that's not faith. That's going to turn into grief because it's not God. I mean, God wants us to be happy, and he gives us good things, but he wants to give them to us. And if we're operating on what we see and hear and feel, it's never as good as what God can do, and it's never as real. Psalm 63.1, David likens physical thirst to longing for God. 
I'm going to read it out of the Message Bible because I liked it a lot. It said, God, you're my God. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up so much hunger and thirst for God, traveling across the dry and weary desert. So here I am in a place of worship, eyes open, drinking in your strength and glory and your generous love. I am really living at last. My lips brim praises like fountains. I bless you every time I take a breath. My arms wave like banners to praise you. Is that the way you feel? An absolute overwhelming desire to be with God. To where it's almost a tangible thing to want to be with him. To want to be in his presence. Or so often I'm in too much of a rush to solve my own problems, to work out my own destiny, to make my own way, to spend too much time checking with him for his direction, his way, his presence. What David's saying is, I want you so much, I'm actually thirsty. I'm hungry to just be with you, to sit. I mean, we can worship in song, and that's wonderful, even in our own private time, to worship in praises, to, to, to tell him things, to read his word. But sometimes, don't you just want to sit there and feel him? To, like, almost feel his breath. To be so close to him, you can hear his heart. I just, I, I want that in my life. I want that every day when I wake up. I want to be with God. That's available. Because he wants to be with us. That's the amazing part of the equation, is that God wants that, that, that much too. He wants us to be so close that we hear his heartbeat and we feel his breath. Because he loves us that much. Like I said, I had, I had two little ones over the weekend with me, with their mommy and daddy, but the little ones were the fun part. And um, the two-year-old often would wake up. I get up about 6.30 because my dog gets up at 6.30. And um, so I would be downstairs, and I would be, like, reading my lesson or doing something. And pretty soon you'd hear this little two-year-old come to the landing and poke her head through the railing and go, Auntie, Auntie, are you up? And I said, yes, I'm up, sweetheart. And she comes running down, and she's up, 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 up. So, you know, she crawls up in your lap, and she, and that only, she only snuggles for a little while, and then she's like, I want food. <laughs> she's a foodie. I want food now. And I'm, okay, fine. But, you know, it was just that anticipation that she was going to run down the stairs, and she was going to want to be with me. I love that, because they're not around a lot. And then pretty soon, here come the four-year-olds. And then there comes, here comes their dog. So then it's all, I have everybody but the grown-ups. So, but you know, that's what God is. God's sitting there. He wants us. He wants us to come running to him. He wants to pick us up. He wants to love us. He loves us. He wants to show us. So in Exodus 15.25, it says, So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it in the water, and it became the water became good to drink. So Moses went to God. He didn't go to the people and say, would you quit complaining? You know, He went to God, and he goes, what am I going to do? And he said, okay, here, take this tree branch, throw it in the water. So he made the water at Mara good for them to drink. And if you've ever seen brackish water, that's a miracle also, because I have a fish pond in my yard, and trust me, you would not want to drink out of it. And, you know, to, cl to clarify that, would, you know, it was amazing. So God performed a miracle right in front of them again, and they could drink the water. So here they were at this little area of Mara, and they had water to drink. 
in our reaction to a dilemma, do we get advice from everybody we can think of? <laughs> do we ask everybody around us? And I'm not talking about asking people to pray with you or for you. But do we complain about our situation and we want all the sympathy we can find? Do we want to tell everybody about our dilemma? Or do we take our problem to God first? Is that the first place we run? We can get others to pray with us, that's for sure. The more people praying for a situation, the better off as far as I'm concerned. But ultimately, we need to hear from God. Because God's the only one who knows. And he can give us confirmation from other people, but we need to hear from God. And we will if we ask. God was not going to let his people die of thirst. He had gone to a lot of trouble to rescue them. He wasn't going to just bring them out three days and abandon them. And you know, when we think about our lives, we have to know that he's gone. He is not going to let us fail. We belong to him. He's not going to abandon us. He knows exactly where we are, whether it's by our making or his trial. He knows exactly where he wants us to be. And he's not going to walk away and leave us to fail. Psalms 95.7 says, For he is our God, we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We're the lamb he holds in his hand. We belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. He bought us. We're his. He redeemed us. That's what redeemed means. It means he went and bought us back. So he's not going to just abandon us and let us fail. So now we come to part two of the story. And I like to call this the contract. These verses actually almost seem out of place in the middle of this story. But God wanted to show Israel that obedience is there for a reason. He is not an unjust God who on a whim gives us an order that we can't understand and we can't keep. God knows what works in our lives. He knows what will keep us happy. He knows what will bring us joy. And it's living in harmony with him and, and reading out of his word. Almost all his promises. His promises are all contained right here. You want a promise for your life? It's in the Bible. He often speaks to us personally, but it never goes against what's in the Bible. It gives us something to hang on to. So Exodus 15, 25 and 26 says, It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness. He said, If you will follow carefully the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands, and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. Seems out of place after purifying water, but God wants to show them. It was God's promise, and he wanted to make a contract with them. Kind of like you do this, and their part was to obey, and God's part was to keep them healthy and safe from sickness. All they had to do was obey. It's kind of like the Nike slogan, just do it. Don't argue with them about it, just do it. 
So he tells them, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. This was God's promise to an obedient Israel. In many ways, their physical health was directly connected to their obedience. There was a book written quite a few years ago by um, Dr. S.I. McMillan. It was called None of These Diseases. I think it's still in print, but if you've never read it, it's worth the read. It really is interesting from a medical point of view, the laws and the rules that God gave Israel and how they're healthy. Their obedience to those laws and rules actually helped keep them healthy. God's laws had a direct impact on hygiene and health. Practices such as circumcision, quarantine, washing and running water, eating kosher, they made a medical difference. So obedience to those rules helped keep them healthy. Beyond the direct medical implications, obedience also means we are at peace with God and free from a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety. This has an obvious benefit on the health of any person. If you're anxious about everything, if you're scared about everything, if you're troubled about everything, you're not going to be healthy. At best, you're going to be depressed, but at worst, you're going to give yourself ulcers and heart conditions. And what's there to be anxious about? God already parted the Red Sea. He can handle thirst. So I would, I would like to read this just as kind of a contract. I used to have to review legal contracts, and hopefully there's no lawyers in here to correct me if I'm wrong. So it says, um, party of the first part, the God of the universe, promises to heal you and give you none of the diseases in Egypt. Party of the second part, Israel, must abide by the following conditions. One, heed my voice. Two, do what is right in my sight. Three, obey my commands and keep my decrees. Simple, straightforward. But the neatest thing of all is that God then seals it by declaring he has the authority to make that contract. If you're going to sign a contract, make sure the other person signing it has the authority to commit. God says, he states his authority, he says, for I am the Lord that heals you. I can do it. I'm the God who can heal you. Psalms 107.20, it says he sent his word and he healed them and delivered them from destruction. That promise makes a really big leap forward in Jesus because it now not only applies to Israel, it applies to us. And it not only applies to our physical health, it applies to our souls. It applies to our spirit. Isaiah 5, 53, 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, that we, that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds we're healed. He heals us, body, soul, spirit. He does it all. We are rescued from sin, we are rescued from death, we're rescued from hell, we don't have to even be afraid about staying in the grave, because he did it all. So he brought a whole new dimension to the healing part of it. The third part of the lesson is the gift. Exodus 15.27 says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 water wells and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the water. In my opinion, God showed Israel that he was a good God, a God that gives good gifts. They had gotten by with the water at Mara, but now he brought them somewhere where they could flourish. He brought them where there was an abundance 
and blessing. He brought them where there was lots of water, lots of shade, probably dates up in the tree. And as a side note, I just want to say I've always, always wondered when I read this, who counted the palm trees? Because it says there were 70. So you could see Moses saying, um, okay, you over there, count the trees, because we're going to put this in scripture. So, <laughs> But God is specifically saying, I gave them a lot. Did he give them a lot because they passed the test? No. He gave them a lot because he could. Because that's the kind of God he is. Because he loves to bless us. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. John 10.10 says, A thief does come, not come except to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life. That's what God wants us to have. That's what's ours. He's already given it to us. We just haven't walked into it most of the time. He wants us to have abundant life, a life we could never make for ourselves, a life I can't figure myself into, maneuver myself into, plan myself into. Only a gift from God gives me God's abundant life. And you know what we have to do? We have to listen, we have to obey, and we have to love him because he already loves us. And that's it. Seems pretty easy. So... Anyway, let's, um, let's take this and sit on it for a while and really see how it affects your life. See what it means. What does it look like if I live this out? So, and bless you.